This is Stimulus. If you see patients for a living and find it's not always so easy doing the job, we get you and we've got your back. My name is Rob Orman. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a certified coach, I help physicians get unstuck, recalibrate work-life balance, rediscover the joy in work, and sometimes find new careers and creative outlets. We produce the Stimulus Podcast to give you tools to find more fulfillment in your life and work and do it all with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. And before we get into the meat and potatoes of the show, I want to take a few moments and talk about coaching. You know, I'm talking about it in the intro now. And what's happening here? You know, frankly, some, some of you have been listeners for well over 15 years through various projects. And, you know, and on this show, I just kind of popped coaching out there like, okay, here it is. It's what we're doing. And I think it deserves a little explanation. So a few years ago, I retired from clinical practice and I went into emergency medicine education full-time. I've been doing it part-time, went into it full-time. That's also around when I started Stimulus. And to that point, my commitment for many years now, especially the last several years, has been to support the well-being of physicians, clinicians, anyone in healthcare. You know what? Frankly, anyone who chooses to listen. And I've turned this avocation into a vocation by training in an executive coaching academy and have entered a new phase of my career. Started Orman Physician Coaching. You go to the website, you'll see that. Don't worry stimulus is not going away. It's actually, I'm doubling down on stimulus. It's going to continue to provide a lot of education and tools. And I have found sometimes a curriculum, so to speak, for coaching clients and for you. And what I love about coaching is that it's always forward-looking versus you know looking backwards and kind of trenching through the work you might do with a therapist or a counselor. And when I think about it, there's actually no way I could have done this earlier in my career. It took all that time working in the ED, understanding what it means to practice medicine on a granular level, and frankly, having several rounds of burnout, big time burnout, and working through it. And I, I want to give a little insight into what coaching looks like, because Coaching in medicine, it's kind of a new thing. Am I coaching you to resuscitate a critically ill neonate? No, it is not. That is not the clinical stuff. It's about career. It's about life. It's about the nexus of the two, putting you on track to where you want to be. And when it comes to what the actual coaching process looks like, what probably pops in your mind might be the sports coach who says, all right, go run this play. You know, that image of coaching is pretty directive. And you're not much of a participant in that you're being told what to do. The kind of coaching we do here, that's where you and I partner to find creative ways to solve challenging problems, get unstuck, as I say in the intro, discover new strategies to get whatever outcome you're hoping to achieve. And then we work together to bring out your best ideas. But one of the biggest things is keeps you accountable. And why is that so important? Let me ask you this. How often do you get something rolling, some great idea, but it gets too big or you lose momentum or just peters out? With coaching, there's accountability. Someone on the other end of that conversation helping keep you accountable to make sure that your ideas keep moving forward. And my goal is to make the hour of coaching feel like the most valuable hour of your week. And I, you know what? And I think one of the real drivers for this is I wish that I had had a coach 
during several stages of my career, you know, several times when I was having difficulty with making a decision or I was at a real crossroads or I was feeling burnt and I just kind of trudged through it blindly. If you have any questions, you can hit me up at the website, but now let's get on to the content of the show. We're going to cover two solutions to make medical documentation, charting, the electronic medical record, the EMR less onerous. Why this topic? When I speak with clinicians, whether it's a group or individuals, it doesn't matter. Documentation and the EMR consistently come up as a source of frustration. Frankly, as a detractor from the practice of medicine. I said, always there's some person in a group who says, oh no, I love the EMR. But really, you know what they really love? is what the EMR gives you. Real-time and instantaneous information, communication. It's incredible. Come on. The EMR is frankly amazing with that. If you lived in the era where you had to have charts carried from medical records to you and it would take an hour and then you would just be thumbing through every page and, oh my gosh, it's a level up in the realm of information accessibility. But the cost of that is that all that information needs to be entered and you are the data center. Probably didn't think of that when you were starting your medical career, that data entry was going to be a significant part of it, but it is. There's no getting around it. So today we're going to look at two very specific strategies on how to, you might say, ease your way when it comes to electronic documentation. If you're not a practicing clinician, this might not be an episode for you. I'm just going to be frank about it. A lot of the episodes are generally applicable no matter what your job. But if you don't practice medicine or use uh, an electronic medical record, it might be just extremely esoteric. If you are a practicing clinician, you might find this manna from heaven. So let's get to our first guest, Dr. Alan Seeloff. Alan is an attending emergency physician in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And why I wanted Alan to come on the show is that he has a really unique way that he uses scribes in his clinical practice. Now, scribes are all over, right? I mean, they've become ubiquitous in medical practice, although I guess since COVID, a lot of departments have dropped scribes, but many still have them. And I think Alan's approach can change the game in how you use scribes. Make the most out of a scribe's skills and time, and frankly, level of education, right? These are not physicians or APPs. They're usually college students. And I'll tell you, just as a proviso, I recorded this with Alan when I was still working in clinical practice. So you're going to hear me talk about documentation in the present tense. So just want to clarify that, but let's get to it. How documentation can suck a little less. All right, about a year and a half ago, I started working with scribes for the first time. And I really liked having some help pulling in the data, doing some charting. I really liked having someone to teach and to talk to during a shift. It's kind of nice. And I'm friends with some of the scribes now. But I found that I went back to look at the chart. The majority of the time, it was not what I wanted. And the narrative wasn't what I heard from the patient. And then it ended up taking me more time to redo the charts than it would take me to just do them on my own. And so that's what I ended up doing. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do them on my own because this is just taking extra time to go and redo all of these charts. And then it hit me that we spend years and years developing the narrative 
the narrative of how to tell the story of the history of present illness, how to frame things in a certain way, and really what we're doing when we write that or when we say that is we're making an argument for what comes next, the medical decision-making. That is justified by what we put in the HPI. It's the second chapter. And you know what? It is a really complex task. It seems simple, but it's anything but simple. And when I looked at a scribe's chart, it did not represent the argument I wanted to make. Many of the pertinent positives, many of the pertinent negatives weren't there. There was extraneous information. And sometimes there were things on there that were not medical legally sound. I agree with you. When I worked with a scribe for the first time as you know, doing night shifts and as a resident, I'm like, this is great. My charts will be perfect. And I'd, I'd get done. I said, where did the patient ever say this, that, or the other thing? And to preface this, I don't think this is ever a scribe's fault. It's exactly not. Because I, I was working with a scribe earlier in the year and the patient said something and I saw him standing at the computer. This is one of my favorite scribes, awesome guy. And I looked at him. I said, that was important, what the patient just said. And he's like, oh, thank you. That's really helps me when you say that. I didn't know. I didn't know that was important. And this is what we've been trained to do is create that narrative to figure out what truly is pertinent to the history of present illness. And when I start a shift with a scribe, I set ground rules for what I want in the chart. I don't need every verbiage from every radiology report or every single lab pulled in. There are some medical legal things about that, about every pertinent or abnormal finding or incidentaloma. I tell them up front what I want. And I'll also review with them the active and chronic conditions that kind of automatically get populated with our charting system. You know, for example, I learned from one of my attendings in residency that if it pulls in suicidal thoughts and the patient's there for chest pain and they have a remote psychiatric history, I don't want that in my chronic active problems because God forbid something happens, that's going to look poorly on me and it's no one's fault but my own. So I set up ground rules up front for how I want the chart to look and what I want pulled in and what I don't. Here I come, young Rabio. I'm a junior in college. I'm thinking about medical school and I am a freshly trained scribe. I've got my uh, scribe skills. I understand the whole system. I've been working with a couple other docs. And what I do is I go into the room with them and I type down things. When the radiology report comes, I copy that, I paste that in the chart, and I do the same thing with the labs. I'm all set. And now I come to work with this guy, known to be difficult, Dr. Seeloff, and he is going to give me the ground rules. So tell me specifically what you're going to say to me. When I have you set up a chart for me, I don't want you to automatically reflexively pull in every radiology report. Typically, I'll address this in my medical decision-making that we'll go through. If there's something specific, I will ask you to pull it in. But for the most part, leave the labs and leave the radiology reports. And I will kind of direct you so you know what I want pulled in or not. We'll go through the active and chronic conditions so you know what I want in the chart to make it look presentable and appropriate. And if we have some time at the end, I'll kind of explain to you why because I know you have an interest in medicine and going into medical school. So that's where we'll start. Clear communication. Excellent. Let's go see our first patient. I don't get in the habit of taking scribes into the room to interview the patient with me. This is nothing personal, but there's a skill to interpreting the way patients speak and what they mean. I think it would be beneficial to both of us for me to see a couple patients. And what I'll do is I'll dictate the HPI and the beginning of my MDM and pertinent physical findings for you to look through and proofread and then add into the chart. This, I think, will help both of our workflow in the sense that we won't spend time going back through and it'll minimize the amount of questions you have. So I will go see two or three patients and I will plan to dictate to you with the software, the HPI, the pertinent physical findings and the beginning of the MDM. And then I'll come back and update each chart as we go so that you can get them done in a reasonable time and neither of us are there six hours after our shift. 
I think what you're describing is the key point of this. Usually what happens is you take the scribe into the room with you. They're typing the information. You come out, you, you know, you maybe you talk a little bit, you go see the next patient. But it sounds like what you're doing is you've, you're seeing patients and while you are doing your work, your scribe is working on your charts. That's the flow that we've established. And a number of people in my group work the same way. I don't feel it's appropriate to ask a scribe to interpret what I refer to as patient speak. And chest pain in a viral URI 22-year-old is different than chest pain in the 80-year-old. And I'm trained and have gone through school and professional school to interpret and develop a way to describe this to tailor my workup like you had mentioned previously and then address it in my MDM. And there's so many nuances of targeted history taking. You know, you think back to the pan positive review of systems and that's my job. That is not a scribe's job to delineate what needs to be addressed at this visit. And they're very good at recording information and crafting charts and being accurate from what a patient says. But you also think back to the times that a patient will point to where their pain, you ask them where their pain is, they'll point to their pain and it'll be in the epigastrium and the scribe looking at that sees chest or sees belly and it's the complete opposite workup of what you're doing. And that's not fair to them. And that's why it works better in my workflow and for their workflow. If I see the patient dictate the chart, then they have the opportunity to ask me questions about how I want this phrased or if they didn't understand this. And then it also gives us a chance to talk about why and allow them to ask questions when they're not spending the entire time sifting through and trying to create this chart that may or may not be what I'm looking for. Let me pause you on dictate the chart because there's a lot of things that can mean. Now, are you talking straight to the scribe and they are transcribing what you say? Are you using a voice recognition and putting that into a Word doc and then they copy and paste? I mean, what's the actual workflow of that dictation and then getting it in front of the scribe's eyes and onto the chart? So we at our hospital system use Dragon and I will dictate into Dragon and it will do a pretty good job depending on how flustered or how much coffee I've had about recording my speech. Then what they'll do is they will listen back and make sure that what's transcribed and dictated is accurate based on what they're hearing in the voice recording system. And I, and I have no conflicts of interest with Dragon or any voice recognition or anything. So they're just listening to what you say? Or are they looking at your text? And where are they looking at your text? With Dragon, there's kind of a Dragon pad that's kind of like a Word document. They will basically look at my text as they're listening back, making sure it's appropriate. And when it is, they will then pull it into the chart or pull it into the exam. And that chart is then complete and they'll delete it off of the dictation pad when it's in the chart and they'll be ready for the update. And it works really well when I can dictate specific physical exam findings. Patient has hyperesthesia to touch of the skin, you know, the abdominal wall is very different than generalized abdominal pain. Now, could you just put that into your EMR? Well, I don't, I'm not sure what kind of EMR you use, but just throw it all down and you could go very quickly on Dragon. Dragon doesn't love quickly, but you could go quickly and they're there, they're listening, they kind of kind of know the thing and then they go proofread it, clean it up. You don't have to take that extra step of going into a Dragon pad or work in one place where we have secure Word documents where they're able to go in and cut and paste or, or whatnot. I think for them, it allows the scribe to keep a record of where they are at in their workflow. So I think it works easier for them to know, I've proofread this. Once it's proofread, I then pull it into the chart. That one is done for the moment. I can delete this off the pad. So I think it's more of a workflow for them rather than for us 
when you're dictating these, do you have some kind of a, like a mobile device, like a workstation on wheels? Or are you going back to a desk sitting down and then going back to see the next patient? That aspect of the workflow, when you actually engage with the computer, that is a cessation of patient care. I will go see a patient without a computer, without a workstation on wheels, and then I'll come out and the scribe will have their own workstation on wheels that they're kind of sitting next to me at my desk. And I will dictate to Dragon on their workstation on wheels and then be able to go back to my computer. That is a communication with the Dragon. That right there. I was wondering how you were doing that communication between the two computers. You were specifically using the scribe's workstation putting all of the data into there, and then they're able to manipulate it and work with it. Yes. And then I have my own computer for orders, reviewing charts, and that works out so well because I can spend two minutes before I go see a patient looking up their last visit, looking up their last echo, looking up their last cath. And I can add those things to my narrative or to my MDM that a scribe is not going to know. And it's not fair to ask them to know those things, but it makes my chart that much better. makes my consultant that much better. And this way, in real time, at our hospital system, oftentimes our hospitalists, our admitting doctors are looking at our charts before they call us back. And so it just works well for kind of all parties involved. All right, Alan Seeloff, flipping the scribe interaction. Actually, I don't, I don't know, maybe some of you guys actually do it that way, but most scribe interactions I've seen are not as Alan describes, but I think his makes the most sense as far as efficiency and flow. Next up, we have Dr. Lon Setnick, emergency physician in New Hampshire, who takes a nearly opposite approach to what we just heard. No scribe and take your documentation to the bedside. Lon, you reached out saying that there is an aspect of documentation that doesn't get a lot of discussion, and that is charting in the room, which now that you've got EMR and most places have computers in the room is doable. But I imagine that there are certain bits of technology and certain setups that you need to do it. But before we get to that, before we get to charting in the room, what was your documentation like before you started charting in the room? We had an interesting evolution when we started as an organization transitioning to our EMR system. We kind of saw the writing on the wall that that was going to be a hard transition for our private group. And we were really worried about our sustainability. So then we transitioned to having scribes create our documentation in the hospital EMR. Our particular implementation of Cerner uses something called dynamic documentation which really doesn't work well with multiple different people contributing to it. And so it's just a challenging workflow to continue to use the scribes. So we actually stopped using scribes about three months after we went to the EMR, which is definitely not the normal pattern. Most organizations implement an EMR and then get scribes because it's so hard to use. We got scribes in order to implement the EMR and then got rid of them afterwards. Because scribes are such an interesting phenomenon and topic. And I think people love scribes or people really don't love, I mean, the scribes themselves are awesome, right? Because they want, you know, they're like med students or nursing students or PA students, and they're just super involved and engaged and it's fun. You know, it's like, you've got a buddy during your shift, but I'm curious as to what was the biggest challenge or biggest set of challenges that you guys found I mean, frankly, going from full dictation to having a scribe. 
I think the people who were most successful using the scribes were really the people who were able to examine their own workflow and change it in order to optimize the scribes work, not their own work. And that's actually kind of a hard twist in your mind. You say, well, I've hired this person. I'm paying them practically hourly out of my own pocket. And yet I'm supposed to change what I do to make things work better for them. But I think if you looked at at them is as an extension of you and that the, they were responsible for your work product, in order to get the most out of them, you had to re-examine how you work as an individual and change how you work in order for them to be most effective. That's I love that you mentioned that because when I started using scribes coming to a, a new shop from go, going from a relatively, I'd say fairly functional EMR to you know, the Cadillac EMR, which is still painful. <laughs> I mean, irony, the best one still hurts. To having a scribe was that my workflow was, okay, well, you follow me and you do the things that I would normally do. And I'll just keep doing it as I always do. And it was super frustrating because I figured they could kind of read my mind exactly how I wanted a document to go. And then I would look at them and it would essentially look like a like a case study in med mal risk of a chart. Like you can't say this, you can't say this this way. This person said this, but really the flavor of it was that when they said worst headache of my life. Well, you know they say they have the worst headache of life every day, and I know all of these landmines. So I would spend two hours after every shift, every shift, diffusing landmines in the charts. I said, okay. <laughs> I could just document on my own and spend the same amount of time. You're talking about changing your workflow. And I and I wish that before I had stopped using a scribe, I'd heard this advice. It was from Alan Seeloff. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I do this the total opposite way. I go in and see the patient. I actually never have the scribe leave the workstation. And I come back and I tell them exactly what's going on. I tell them my MDM, anything positive in the exam. And they're just working on my document the whole time. And they're not my buddy in the room and, and helping me out there. I come back and they're giving me reminders and they are just essentially, they're on the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, making sure that it's running well. And I'm going away on away missions. Oh man, we got a Star Trek reference. I feel really energized by that. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw it a little bit different. I, I did have some of my colleagues who were pretty successful using that technique. Um, the way I approached it was I told them, I don't want you to write down anything the patient says. At some point, the patient ah. is going to talk and I'm going to I'm going to stop the patient from talking and I'm going to rephrase what I heard them say. And that's my opportunity to make sure they feel listened to. And I want you to write down what I say. So I would have the scribe come in the room and I would cue them to say, I'm going to say the words, what I just heard you say was dot, dot, dot. And I want you to start writing then and transcribe what I told the patient I heard them say. And that's going to be my summary of the case. And so it would go something like this. So what I'm hearing you say is you're a 47-year-old with a history of high blood pressure and high cholesterol who's been having pressure in their chest that comes and goes and it comes on after exertion and it doesn't radiate to the back and there's no ripping or tearing. And so I would have the scribe perform the function of capturing the information that I thought was valuable. And that's exactly how I'm also thinking about documenting in the room. So how did that transform into how you're doing it now? Like what was the aha moment? 
there were two segues. One was the scribe and one was a colleague of mine, Michael Lynch, and I did some peer coaching. So after Atul Gawande's coaching article came out, we said, we just need to try this. And we spent a couple hours, a couple times just observing one another work. And one of the elements of feedback he gave me is that I was doing a good job listening to the patient, but the patient never had an opportunity to correct my thinking. And I never reflected back to the patient what I had heard. And so I started incorporating that into my workflow based on his advice. And what I found was that was a really great opportunity to have the scribe capture what I thought was important. And so, fast forward to us getting rid of scribes, and interestingly, using voice dictation, I can dictate faster than the scribe could type. So, it's actually easier for me to just dictate the same thing in the room in front of the patient and have that work be heard by the patient and give them an opportunity to correct me or for me to ask clarifying questions or to pause or to remember to ask about family history and the patient with chest pain things like that. So what I found is by doing it in front of the patient, instead of leaving the room to do the transcription or the conversation with the scribe, that I was really killing two birds with one stone. One, I was reflecting back at the patient what I'd heard and making sure they felt heard and understood. And number two, not doing that work twice and only doing it once. And number three, being in front of the patient as much as possible, which I think from a patient standpoint is a huge satisfier. Questions on that. Okay. So most computers in the room don't have voice to text. Occasionally you'll have the workstation on wheels that you you drag around. It reminds me of those old cartoons, probably weren't even cartoons, probably real, where you got the the shekel around your ankle <laughs> and the chain and like the giant lead ball that you're pulling. Yep, yep. You know, I mean, they're just, they're big and cumbersome and you sort of need to be nimble on your feet in, in the ED. You're hurtling. So I would imagine that you didn't have those dictaphones connected to the computer in every room. So how did you account for that? Yeah. So the enabling technology here is a series of technologies actually um, to go through. One is, can you get into the computer quickly? Because if it's a pain in the butt and it takes minutes for you to log into that workstation, this is a non-starter. Our organization uses a technology called Improvata, but I'm sure there are other companies and I definitely have no stake in any particular technology here. I'm just telling you what we use. Um, And then behind Improvata, you need the ability for uh, your organization to have a, a thin client. So to be able to pull your desktop from the workstation you were you were at to the workstation you are at and have it come in in the state that it was in when you left it. Your stuff's in the cloud and you just get to yeah. open up a window and look at the cloud wherever you go. And Exactly. That's a better summary than I did. Yeah. Then how do you get your dictation onto there? So I use uh, the... Dragon Power Mic mobile app. So that replaces the dictaphone and I just do it on my phone. There are some behaviors that make this better than others. So f- pulling out your phone in front of the patient and logging on and doing stuff, you have to kind of explain to them what it is that you're doing. So I have kind of a phraseology that I use, which is something along the lines of, I'm just going to open up my note and talk into it and I'm going to create my note right now. And I want you to give me some input into whether I've got the details right or not. So I say something like that so that they understand the transition that I'm making. And so I've kind of fixed periods of work that I'm doing with the patient. I'm doing the history and physical part. 
And then I move to the creating the note part. And I try to do that as much as possible in the room. And then I move to the, now I'm going to put in your orders or your discharge instructions. And I try to do all of that work in the room if I can. How does your documentation get from your phone onto your computer? And are you able to pull your dot phrases or, or presets? It, it feels like there's a gap when you're doing it on your phone and then getting it onto that thin client. So we imagine that when we pull out our dragon mic to dictate into our session, that we're doing that work on the computer in front of us, but we're not. Actually, that work is happening remotely because it's a thin client and you can pop from computer to computer, from workstation to workstation. From a Dragon standpoint, it doesn't care whether I'm using a microphone connected to the computer or a microphone not connected to the computer, which is what my um, phone acts as. And my phone just takes the voice and sends it to Waltham Mass where it's transcribed and then it's inserted into the session in the documentation template. In And I can use my normal dot phrases and everything the way I normally would. Okay. So I was thinking that you're dictating it onto your phone, sort of like you would dictate onto Google Docs or a voicemail or a text, and then transferring that onto your chart. But this is in real time. You're dictating into your phone and it's showing up on that computer screen as if you had the power mic listeners, you're probably thinking, of course, that's what he's saying. <laughs> but but I, I always think of that phone technology that there's a wall, right? That the, that the hospital has a wall that your phone is not going to interact with that computer. So how do you account for that? Or how do you get around that barrier of your private device and then the hospital's system? I know enough to say that our hospital has bought this global... Uh, Dragon client, which lets them use both the mobile or the dictation microphones. And any person can use any technology as they want. So I just had to download the, the app and then get some signature file from my hospital and, and it lets the app talk to the clients. So this is like the enabling technology to do it this way. And we even heard from a, a bunch of clients that they got rid of all the microphones because there's so much of a hassle to manage. And they just went with the cell phone based clients because they don't have to manage them at all. It's easy to keep the app updated and the device won't break and things like that. Okay. You're talking about a, a perfect situation where you're walking into a room and someone has broken their ankle and they don't have a fever and a cough. And it's not this time it century where COVID is happening. And now you're fully PPE'd and you've got a gown on and somebody's got a fever and a cough. And right now you've got this device that's this fomite and you're kind of reaching in and out. How are you managing it now? I think it's worth saying that COVID has made everything that we do much more difficult. And one thing is that in an N95, it's pretty tough to dictate. Um, there's just a lot of muffling of your voice. I kind of view it as any other fomite that you're bringing in the room that sometimes right now when I go see patients, after I go in the room, I've decided that they are a patient of interest and I need to kind of backtrack and do a, you know, a doffing procedure more or less where I'm sterilizing my stethoscope and I'm sterilizing my phone and I'm, I'm kind of backing out of the room and uh, cleaning myself up and then getting into PPE before I go in. 
I, I would definitely say this is harder in the era of COVID. Uh, and there are cases where I don't do dictation in the room routinely right now. Um, so if it's a, you know, multi-trauma and there's 12 providers in the room, there's no room for a computer. It's not the right context for it. And then I just do my normal work, but I, I keep using my phone as the transcription device during the entire shift because swapping back and forth is a hassle in our system. Um, so I go back to the desk and do my note in, I don't know, a half, a third of the cases, depending on the day. So for example, you're doing something and paramedics bring in two patients. You've got one chest pain and one you know, femur fracture. And you want to get things going really quickly and it takes time, right? I mean, you're essentially front loading your documentation in the room rather than back loading it when you get back to your workstation or at the end of your shift. So it's hard to fully front load when you we're talking about a thin client, when you thin slice these things, okay, I'm going to get the paramedic report. I'm going to get some, get some things going. I'm going to go see the next patient. Or do you have a variation of this for your thin slice? Yeah, I think honestly, the most important part, the part that's hardest to recreate for me is the HPI. What I would argue is that the fundamentals that I, I guess I would argue is number one, when you work in the patient's room, you do a couple of things. You build trust because you're building transparency to your work. You reduce the amount of times that you have to go back in the room to ask questions. And so you just encapsulate all of that work into one work session, which makes you more efficient in the long run. And it builds trust. And so those are the kind of fundamental principles I'm trying to get across. Additionally, for, for my sake, it reduces the cognitive burden of carrying around information in my head that I, I need to store in my short-term memory in order to then put down somewhere later. And what I find is that as the day goes on, the more I'm carrying in my head, the harder it is for me to pay attention to the patient in front of me, the harder it is for me to have like the cognitive creativity required to do a good history physical and think about a broad differential. And so what I'm trying to do is as early as possible, put down what I heard from the patient as the HPI, because I think that that's honestly the hardest part to capture and get right. And so what I try to do as much as possible is go into the room, listen, ask a couple questions, gather information, and then if possible in the room, if not possible directly when I've left the room, put that information down in a cohesive package. And sometimes it's right outside the room at one of the workstations that's there. And I'll just put down the HPI that I heard from EMS and from the patient and then go into the next room and then go back and do uh, when, you know, when things have settled down, go back, do more physical, do more review of systems, family history, all that stuff. And I can do those pieces of the work now in front of the patient. Sometimes I don't do any of it. And all I do in front of the patient is the medical decision making and the discharge. And I even view that as a win. What I might do for patients' instructions is dictate the instructions in front of the patient. So I'll say something like, so I'm just going to talk to the computer and create your discharge instructions. And I want you to listen in because this is the advice I'm giving to you. And then I'll say, at this point, we don't have a cause for your chest pain. It looks like you're very low risk for this being a dangerous cause. If you have new or worsening symptoms, especially dot, 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 Please come back to the emergency department. Please see your doctor in 
five to seven days or return here for any other concerns or something like that. When the EDs where I was working went from either paper to EMR or dictation to EMR, I found myself recreating my job description as a desk jockey who was frequently interrupted. So I'm curious if your job, that wasn't the whole job description, but that was what it felt like for, you know, a significant portion of the shift. How does this play out as far as interruptions and desk time and flow? I'm spending less time being interrupted and less time at my desk, which is not really how I want to view my job. (laughs) I want to view my job as working with a patient and not working with a computer. I want to ask a question about the medical decision making. Are you doing the full MDM without the ED course, obviously, but the full MDM at the time that you do the history of present illness with that full documentation, like right in front of them? Yeah, I would say it depends. You know, I'm I'm kind of glancing at the track board at the same time and making sure patients aren't stacking up. And uh, I kind of think if I can get 75 or 80% of the way there, it's a huge win. And it might even be that I have no completed notes at the end of my shift, and I have 17 unfinished notes. But every single one of those notes is almost completely done. And I just need a way to glance at it and figure out which section do I need to completely finish. I think a workflow discipline, that, and I say discipline, that you really have to focus on this, and I'm not sure if you do it, are the updates and reassessments. And you know, in most systems, there's, a, there's an area for you to auto-populate your reassessment. And I was never a pro at doing that in real time. When I, when I could, it felt, oh yeah, I'm, uh, th- this is great because it's really showing the ED flow. It would be going back at the end of the shift saying, oh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened with a little dash, 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 dash. Is that part of your flow is that when you go in and you reassess, you do the exact same thing. So, so I'm just going to talk into here and I'm going to talk about what this reassessment shows and what our plan is from now. That's my goal. So my first habit is whenever I go in the room, I don't go to the computer first and I just try to not say anything or say something open and just hear the patient talk. And I do think that that is actually the most efficient way of gathering information. Are you taking notes on paper? No. And so, this is my other habit is I don't want to do any work twice, right? So, if I'm taking notes on paper, I should be putting that in the computer. I really don't want to do that. And I know that I have great partners who are very successful taking notes on paper and then transcribing them later. I just think that that's doing work twice. And so, my priorities are, and this comes from like getting things done principles or lean principles or, you know, if you can do it in less than two minutes, do it right now. If you can do this item of work as one piece, as opposed to multiple smaller fragments, you should do it as one piece, like single piece flow as much as possible. And that extends not just to me and my individual work, but the whole work of the patient care. So you were talking about discharge, and I totally agree with you. It's, a, it's such a win to do it. I try to get the nurse in the room at the same time. So I invite the nurse in. I say, hey, I'm going to go into room 17 and talk about the discharge. Will you come in? And then I give the patient the discharge instructions that I want them to have. And I'm transcribing them in front of the nurse. And then the nurse's only job is to print the print button and come back and hand them to the patient. And that could save an hour off the patient's length of stay. That gap between print of discharge instructions and the patient leaving the room is one, besides waiting for radiology 
is, I mean, that's one of the biggest gaps, right? right? Because the nurse has a bunch of other patients and unless that discharge is, you know, for sure the priority for everybody, they're going to go give that AFib patient some calcium channel blocker. I suspect one of the things that has the nurses less excited to discharge a patient is that they don't actually know what they're supposed to say. And we generally tell the patient specific instructions and then we give them six pages of non-specific. You said it, not me. I was thinking it, but uh, non-specific instructions. I want to jump in for a second. Actually, we're almost, almost done with the show, but going back and hearing that again while I'm editing this, I feel like that point right there is it's like worth the price of admission figuratively discharge is one of the least efficient processes in an emergency department especially when it's busy you know when it's not busy boom 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 you know you click discharge it all it all happens quickly everyone's on the same page no stress but usually things are busy everyone has a lot of tasks and not everyone's tasks are prioritized the same and lon brings up such a great point so you have this conversation with the patient very specific about diagnosis what do we know what do we don't know what's going to be the follow-up when to come back right you know the discharge instructions that you give and then you type in a couple of notes in the chart click discharge and then the nurse comes in gives discharge instructions essentially reading off what you said which is a truncated version of that great dialogue you had they don't know they didn't hear it how do i know this because I have stood outside the room when this is being said, like, wow, that is uh, not really fair to the nurse and not really fair to the patient. Getting yourself and the nurse and the patient together at the same point of time during discharge to make sure that communication is clear. It makes it so much more efficient. It's going to make it easier for everyone. I think, frankly, better for everyone. This is a this is a better way to do it if you can. Solid gold Lon Setnik. Man, if I had the theme song to the Solid Gold TV show back in the 80s, which I used to watch diligently, I'm just going to say that, I would put it here, but I'm not. So let's do some kind of sound effect. Shazam. How has documenting in a different way or with a different workflow impacted how you view your job? I think of my job now not about getting a diagnosis and giving medical advice, but building trust with the patient. The reason why I say that is um, I have missed in 15 years all of the major diagnoses that are on the do not miss list. (laughs) And I think I'm a careful, well-studied physician and does more than my share of of learning and thinking about how I work. And I still have missed all the major ones, neck fascia, aortic dissection, acute glaucoma. And oftentimes in people I know or people I who are part of the community I live in, it just makes me think getting the diagnosis right can't be my goal. So I really, in order to change in, to stay in medicine, I needed to change my goal from getting the diagnosis right to building trust with the patient. And I think that that trust has to be from full transparency about what is the work that we're doing and how we're thinking about their care and really aligning with them as much as possible around that. The other piece of that is that this thing that's coming to all of us is open notes. And open notes is the ability for the patient, as soon as you sign off on your documentation, for them to just pull it up on their phone and look at it. And you darn well better have been open and transparent and honest with them about what's going in the note if they can pull it up on their phone in the ER parking lot. And I don't think this is a bad thing. 
They're paying thousands of dollars for the visit and we have a monopoly on their health. And so they honestly should be fully engaged and trust and engagement largely come from transparency and humility and openness. And so I really try and have those be fundamentals to how the visit goes. We can disagree. In fact, I had a patient yesterday, I vehemently disagreed with the care plan that he wanted to take. But in the end, I'm I'm his health advisor. That's what he's hired me for. And I need it to be the type of experience where he will come back when he changes his mind about about it. And, you know, thankfully, my partner texted me last night and said he did come back. I want that for my patients. And I want it for my job satisfaction and for me being honest with myself about how I can be successful at the end of the day and see my job as success. So that's been as much of a impetus for this as actually the workflows. I I view the technology and the workflows as enablers for the ability to work in a way that builds trust with the patient. And that is it. You have an episode of Stimulus under the belt, maybe even some new tools in the tool bag. Oof, fantastic. You're now part of the Stimulus team, and what most team members do is subscribe to the show so you don't have to use that precious brain power to remember to download it. If you want to reach out about one-on-one coaching, you can do that via our website, stimuluspodcast.com. And while you're there, you can also find complete and detailed show notes of this or any other episode. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.